Hey, everybody. How are you doing? Hi. It is, uh, what day is it today? Oh, it's May the 4th be with you, right? It's the 4th of May, 2023. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. This is episode 156 of my live chat. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, as I customarily do, I join you from the capital of Estados Unidos right here in Washington, D.C., and we have a lot to get to today. So let's see. It's Thursday. That means tomorrow is one championship's debut in the United States, which will be in Denver. That's kind of an interesting, or right outside Denver in Broomfield, Colorado. I've been to that venue many times. I saw Kenny Florian choke out Joe. I think he choked him out or did he armbar him? I can't remember. But either way, uh, Kenny Florian beating Joe Lazan at that at that uh, venue. And then I saw some glory fights there as well. Um, what else? We have the situation with the, the controversy in New York City with the, uh, unfortunately, the, the man losing his life, the uh, the homeless man uh, by the okay, regular civilian, I suppose. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about that. People having very different views on it. If you're interested, we could talk about some of mine. If not, we can move on, I suppose. Uh, what else do we have? We have the Francis Ngannou situation, which to me has been absolutely, Jesus Christ, getting old is weird, man. It's really weird. You always think there's this temptation to think that as you get older, like the lessons that you learned over time, clearly the next generation will have somehow picked up on it and that you won't see them repeated again. And sure enough, that is not in any way <laughs> how the world works. In fact, all the mistakes that your generation makes, typically the next one's going to make as well. And we are right right back to that scenario with Francis Ngannou, man. When when you watch other people from the early to mid-2000s leave UFC and go other places, not just leaving UFC, there's lots of different ways this can happen between a, a fighter and a promoter, and when they split, but in the MMA industry in particular, there is this amazing impulse for all of the various parties to rally around the incumbent power structure, which in this case is the UFC, it's the monopoly, and then to the detriment of everything else, uh, or any other attempt to change the status quo, there is this massive backlash against the person trying to do that, irrespective of the merits of their case. It is mind-fucking-blowing to see this. Mind-blowing. To now have another generation, like having watched this in my early 20s, and now here I am, here I am again in my early 40s, and we're doing the exact same shit. It's it's just it, it will bl aging will blow your fucking mind because there's nothing cool about it. There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing awesome about it. But watching the next series of Jamokes do the exact same shit that your generation fucked up. It really is just a oh, my God, no wonder the path of human progress is so uneven. Anyway, neither here nor there. We can get to that and everything else. Whatever is on your mind. Let's get to that. Yeah, ask me about it. So if you want to, uh, you can put in a donation for the Super Chat. You are certainly under zero obligation if you want to enjoy this for free. You can do that too. But if you uh, if you want to give one, you can. Uh, put one in the Super Chat. We'll get to those in about an hour or so. Okay, I have meandered at the beginning of this long enough. Let's get this party started, shall we? As you know, I like diet sodas. Uh, I have tried this one here, Dr. Pepper. Oops. Dr. Pepper Zero Sugar. I have to tell you, if you've never tried Mountain Dew Zero Sugar or Mountain Dew or Diet Mountain Dew, it's the same thing. They just have two different ways to label it. Um, it's pretty good insofar as diet sodas are concerned. 
and uh, you know how much how much of a difference is there between regular Mountain Dew and that? Not a significant one. I would argue it's the same with this. Pretty good, actually. I mean, you're eating like a raccoon rummaging out of the garbage. I'm not, I don't mean to suggest this is in any way like, you know, we went to this Michelin star rated restaurant. They were serving us Dr. Pepper. Uh, no, I don't mean that. But if you're a degenerate like me, it's it's helpful. Okay, we get your questions here. I got a haircut today. I think he, my man did a good job on the fade, but I don't know about the rest of it. You can, you can grade it in the comments if you want. Uh, Othello has been on my ass. The producer here has been on my ass about getting you guys a dark mode for the questions that appear on the screen. So let me pull that in. How about this? Is that better? Is that better? And I, yes, I had to Google it because I'm that old. So you can mock me if you want. Um, there we go. So this should be better for you, I'm hoping. All right, with that in mind, let's get to the questions. Okay, uh, first one, Luke, I'm curious about your learning. Do you find you are able to absorb information differently now that you aren't actively training in a martial art? I find I need to put something into practice before I can really understand it. But from what I can see, you are actively watching tutorials and training material and using that knowledge towards your breakdowns of fights. Yes. So the reality is I am, uh, you know, everyone's situation is different by virtue of being 43. That doesn't mean you can't train. But but my particular situation makes it difficult. There are some remedies I'm trying to do because, look, the reality is this. There is no substitute for training in terms of what you can learn actually training. There's simply zero substitute for it. In other words, what is something else you could do that's not training that would get you that same kind of insight? And the answer is really nothing. Now, the good news is, as I've told you guys many times, collectively, I've got about a decade of training experience under my belt in various forms of between striking and wrestling and grappling and everything else. So I have a bit of a foundation upon which to build additional insights. It's not like I'm doing uh, starting from scratch this way. And while I would submit to you that there is no substitute for training, the current state of information, the entire ecosystem that's out there, its accessibility, how quick it is to be delivered, um, how in terms of like as progress in the sport develops, people picking up on it and then sharing that information and in a uh, discoverable, digestible way is just extraordinary. There's never been a better time to both train, but also train and consume these supplementary supplementary materials. Um, there, it's just it's. I can't say enough good things. So let me give you an example of something I've been paying attention to, and you've probably seen other folks discuss this over time. I don't present this to you like I found it first, quite the opposite. But I finally made time for one of Craig Jones's instructionals around pinning. And what he basically argues in this, what he basically argues is that if you look at the history of how original, uh, he, he refers to them as IBJJF, the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation. But if you look at how original, basically jiu-jitsu positions in general and the hierarchy they assumed, they would tell you that going from the inside of someone's guard to then side control and then to mount, that this is a path that will not only facilitate ground and pound in certain scenarios, but certainly facilitate submissions and will be great for controlling an opponent. And what he basically argues is that's really not true, or at least, yes, there are certain kinds of mount that can be valuable, back mount can be valuable, it's not that there's no value to them. But in particular, for example, side control, he does not call a very strong position. And the reason why, even with mount having some issues with it, what he basically identifies is that the way in which motion is created 
underneath uh, on the bottom player is with their legs, right? They're able to use their legs to shrimp. They're able to use their legs to bridge and roll. They're able to use their legs for whatever purpose they may need. And then in conjunction with that, it's not just the use of the legs. It is the use of the legs with the feet planted into the mat or the grounded surface or even the cage. That is what generates motion. So now when you think about that, go back a second. What is the value of side control? We're going to use all of our weight in our top of our body to pin with our chest while controlling two ends of the spine, right? Where the base of the neck and then the hip. Again, there could be scenarios where there's some value to that. It's not like there's nothing to it. But is that, is that really the best way to control someone? Is that really the best way to eliminate motion underneath? And the answer is quite obviously not. And so he goes through this entire system that they, not, I don't know if he's developed it, but he put it together in this presentation about, you know, splitting the legs as far apart or, um, you know, if you're going to do back mount, elevating it so their feet aren't on the ground, like, you know, almost Ivan Salivary-esque into it. I bring this all up to say putting those particular things into motion in training would really give me the ultimate insight about it. But taking a tutorial like this and absorbing that information and then rethinking, okay, now wait a second, who does what Craig Jones is talking about here? Islam Makachev, Habib Nurmagomedov, a lot of those guys, you see them, they'll wrap the legs and then lift them, shelf them. And there's, again, there's all different kinds of techniques you can do that eliminates, Bryce Mitchell does this too, by the way, eliminates their ability to create motion as the underneath player or opponent if it's MMA. And that in turn allows for basically more savagery and ground and pound you. Then you get into the whole Dagestani handcuff thing. And he talks about making them, making them make desperate choices that enhance your control is really what he sort of defines as um, the crux of what you're trying to do there. I'll also wear them out over time. So again, it would be much better if I could go and train and put all of these various things into parts of my game and really understand the, the, the very details and the nuance. That part I cannot get. I cannot get. But uh, I can still get someplace by having access to information like this that helps me keep a more modern and fresh understanding. Really, that's what I've discovered is the problem. The problem is less not that I forget what I learned, but that what I would learn has to some degree become outdated. Um, the Bo Nickel situation, you guys might remember where he, in his last UFC fight against Jamie Pickett, he did not knee cut in order to really secure the choke and ended up keeping like almost mount or three-quarter mount in order to do it. Like when I came up, that was definitely not the way that they taught that at all. They definitely taught knee slice, if, if you can, to really create as much of a 90-degree angle as possible for that choke. They don't teach that anymore, but if you're not in the gym, you're just not going to know that. Um, this, this, these kinds of things can, can help, uh, modernize my understanding. And then the last thing I would add is I have a very lucky job where I can ask experts virtually any question that my heart desires. I can, I've got in my Rolodex, MMA coaches, MMA fighters, world champion jujitsu guys, Olympic medalists, like who I can be like, hey, what's up with this? And why this? And da 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 And dude, sometimes, you know, you find the right ones. I've, I've, I've had pro fighters, dude, like like UFC champions, send me sparring footage at times. You know, the, you know, you can't share it. It's just to show you stuff. But that's a real thing that's happened. Like, it's crazy the level of access I've been able to get over time. And so combining all of those things, again, is all of that a substitute for training? Absolutely not. Is that still valuable to me? Extremely. Uh, okay, I am fascinated by the record of those who are 35 and over, 2 and 28, fighting 170 and under. How much stock do you, or two, 
I think you've been to say, do you put into the stat when analyzing Henry versus Aljo and Leon versus Colby? I usually ignore stats like this, but that record is overwhelming. Well, the other key component to understand here is to look at the record 185 and up under the same conditions. And it's basically, not quite, but basically 50-50. So you go from this condition where you have 2-28 and and it's one guy who's got those two to basically 50-50, and up. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, and, and and if you did, for example, if you change the stat a little bit to just do 125 to 155 and then 170 and up, it becomes no one's done it, right? Because it, it would be the two that Tyron Woodley had at welterweight that would make it qualify for the two. So when you see a stat like that, it's just a, it's just a great reminder. I've seen a lot of people get this confused notion about primes saying that age isn't relevant to someone's prime. And I think that's overstating it in MMA. In other words, we've talked about this before. Where like with if you play American or, you know, if you play basketball or in particular American football, right, where it's a little more regimented, you go to high school until you're about 17 or 18. You go to college until you're about typically 21, 22. Some guys go a little bit earlier. Again, some go a little bit later. They get extra years. But that's your rough time frame yeah and then you go to the pros you have a five-year rookie contract if you can make the average nfl career is only three seasons by the way the average nfl career is three seasons so keep that in mind but in any case it's more structured around different timelines in your life you have to finish american high school you typically have to finish american college and then so it puts everyone kind of in that same mark so your primes tend to end tom brady notwithstanding your primes tend to end roughly for the position anyway in similar times and similar ways again even there there's obviously variance but it's much more structured in mma you just don't really have that kind of a thing where you can get guys from all different kinds of backgrounds guys who were you know ncaa champions or not guys who got started in the gym when they were 12 versus guys who picked it up when they were 22 you can get so much variance so that so people try to say look you're just trying to try to pin that to an age in mma you're going you're gonna to get their primes wrong or like the prime just can't be attributed to a number. That's really overstating it a little bit. Yes, there is significant variance. That is true. That is true. However, um, because these latter weight classes, I think, are much deeper, not by accident, right? You have, you have access to a worldwide recruiting class of athletes that you really don't have for most other sports, particularly not in the United States. Like, you're not going to play baseball if you're Henry Cejudo size. You're not going to play, in all likelihood, in the NBA. You're not going to play in the NFL. You know, I don't even know if you can race cars at that at that size. I, I don't know. I don't know if what the situation is with NASCAR. But in general, you're not going to get picked for a fucking thing. But because it's so weight class controlled um, and those other athletes are getting pulled into other directions, among other factors, you have this enormous worldwide talent pool. It's why 155 is good like everywhere. 135 is good everywhere. But okay. Um, but you can see aging. Uh, so yes, someone's prime can be all over the place. Someone could be at 20, 27. Someone other, someone's prime could be like 32. It, it can be uh, uh, altered. However, it is extremely unlikely that as you get closer to 40 than you do 30, and you are in one of the lighter weight classes, again, where these are not guys who would be selected out for other sports very early or, or even at all in certain cases, um, aging is unforgiving. It's, un, it's unforgiving. Like the numbers speak to it. Like no one from lightweight down has ever done it. Like now – Henry Cejudo is the competitor of all competitors. I made this point before, like he was not expected to gold medal in 2008 at the Beijing Games and did because he had an absolutely, like truly historic run 
through that tournament, having to to dig himself out of trouble again and again and again and again. I mean, really rose to the occasion in the most miraculous of ways, right? So he and then doing that again uh, to a lesser extent, but still a very difficult one against Marlon Marais. You see what I'm saying? Like this guy, man, when he gets pressed, he has ability to think, to adjust, to stay calm, to actually stay confident in what he does. Like he's got a real special ability but three years off he's 36 years old no one in that weight class not been many attempts but no one certainly 155 and down has ever done it and he's fighting a guy who i think is criminally underrated in aljamain sterling and uh who's real good and in his prime or at least you know maybe the last stages of it at 33 years old tough fight man tough fight let's see this is funny. Hey, Lord, biohacker. I've said this before. If you've ever seen anyone call themselves a biohacker, it's like a real good possibility that they're a scam artist, or in fact, almost almost guaranteed they are. All right. With us being a couple months removed from his last L, can you please do a quick brainstorm on one, what should be next for Piotr Jan in terms of career trajectory? I think he should take a, um, uh, an easier fight personally. And two, of things he can control, what can he improve upon or change in cage to change his fortunes? This is a harder thing to go on without having more time to think about it. I will say, um, obviously, two things you could point to. It really cost him against Sterling. It wouldn't cost him as much against other guys. But two things you could, like, again, nothing is all the way wrong or all the way right. In other words, it's always a thing you should do or always a thing you shouldn't do. It's always a case by case basis. It's always how much they use it and what circumstance they use it. They use it. It's never one size fits all, but two things that have gotten him into trouble are one, um, not having great single leg takedown defense and in particular trying to use turning and, and running as a means of escape. That's true in other sports that they do teach that, but that's insufficient against the guy with the kind of back control and the ability to like, I mean, it's just, it's just plainly giving the guy back exposure, right? Like it's, it's just not very effective. And the other one is the way he defends. He covers his face a lot. I, I will tell you, like, I think with big gloves and in certain circumstances, catching on the gloves like that and then covering your face, there can be certain, there can, even in MMA, there can be real value to it. But I will tell you that the higher level striking guys I talk to and their coaches are largely in lockstep that they, over time, just think that that's really not an optimal way to fight. That if you're going to do it, you have to be very, very minimal with it. Certain circumstances, often for baits, that kind of a thing. Um and I think he has an over-reliance on it. And I think it makes him open to all kinds of counterattack. I think he's intentionally blinding himself for better defense. I, I just don't think the trade-off, in, in as much as he uses it, has been helpful. So to me, some of the scrambling issues, some of the single-leg takedown defense issues, some of the de strike, striking defense issues, because like his offense is pretty great. Um, I feel like he gets into trouble with some of those other areas. Now, that's off the top of the dome, so I don't, there might be more or other things to focus on, but those two stand out to me, like things that I've seen him get, get like what things have gotten him in trouble repeatedly over the course of fights. Those two things, those two things. Uh, let's see. Okay. How is it that Izzy got so much shit for fights going to decision when Robert Whitaker hasn't finished a single opponent since 2017? It's been over six years since Whitaker's last finish. Is that really true? Jesus. Uh, Izzy has finished seven opponents since the last time Whitaker finished. So is that really true? 
The extreme bias and double standards the MMA community can have for certain fighters is extraordinary. Now, you know what? I want to test that theory before I just accept that. Not in any way saying it's wrong. I'm doing the old, um, what do you want to call it? Ronald Reagan bit, trust but verify. Let's do that. So his last, so he has the, okay, yeah. The last finish came against, he almost finished Jared Cannonier, by the way, but okay, he didn't. Uh, he had the split decision with Yoel Romero and then the decision. Yeah, it was Jacques Array. Wow. It was Jacques Array in 2017. I think a couple of reasons. One, I think you know, something I pointed out, is like there's, there's certain people in the world that just sort of attract an, a kind of adoration that sometimes you just can't even ever understand. And conversely, there are kinds of people in this world that attract certain forms of um, pushback, criticism, whatever, for reasons that seem flimsy to you. It It is the way things go. I think Izzy has been one of the guys that has been somewhat the victim of people just not really understanding him, at least early on anyway. Okay, neither here nor there. What I would really say is two things. One, Izzy is the weight class champion, at least as it stands today. He's going to have a greater responsibility to perform, such as it means anything to you for the audience. There's just going to be greater expectation as the belt holder. And you could say, well, what about when Whitaker was the belt holder? Right, but when Whitaker was the belt holder, he uh, or, or right up until then, he uh, the fight against Jacare was not a title fight, but he fought Yoel Romero back-to-back thereafter, and I think there was a great degree of respect for how difficult that was a task physically, even though he wasn't able to get the finish. And those fights were remarkable and fun. And and like, especially the second one was kind of all over the place. That's why they made a second one. So, you know, and then it was after that he lost to Izzy. And since then it's been the Izzy show uh, or even before that, depending on your perspective, but certainly since that time he's been the belt holder. And so, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Izzy was the interim champ in in between spaces, but you get the idea. From that point on, it was he was the guy that the attention focused on, and so he faced this form of criticism. Also, he was the one with the kickboxing background, like so. Everyone's like, "Oh my God, he's this amazing striker," and he is. But people don't know that that can mean great defense, that can mean great setups, that can mean a lot of great footwork. Doesn't always mean like this goes here and person goes down. It's you know, those often you get more of those with people who are better, but. You know, it's never one-to-one. So I would say that, yeah. Also, the MMA community really likes Robert Whitaker, and for good reason. He seems quite likable. But <laughs> between picking the, the fans and the media are going to pick winners and losers, favorites and non-favorites. And certainly, I think over time, Izzy has become a bit of a favorite, but for the media anyway. But um, a lot of people like Robert Whitaker. Like, he's he's very likable, and, uh, and he's extremely talented. So I, I sort of get how we got here some of it is fair a little bit unfair together it, it creates this sort of weird discrepancy Tuki's on I don't know if you've heard Godzilla rampaging through downtown Tokyo but she is here she is here uh okay someone's asking thoughts on Jack De La Maddalena versus Sean Brady at UFC 290 we talked a little bit about that on uh morning combat real striker versus grappler scenario real striker versus grappler Uh, let's see. Someone's asking about this. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I mean, how much does personality affect a fighter's style and game plan? Can you think of any fighters whose personality 
starkly contrasts with their style. For example, Sean Strickland. Yeah, he'd be the noteworthy one. Um, no, you tend to see fingerprints of people through their style. Is it inherently defensive? Is it inherently offensive? Um, but I would say to be careful a little bit, like, I bet you get a better understanding of who Sean Strickland is by training with him than fighting him. Like, to your point about the question, but what I'm saying is, if you had, like, fights in the gym, he you might get a certain feeling about him and uh, sort of his way of viewing the world, or any fighter in particular. But his, his case sort of stands out in that way where you might get a competitive experience against him in the gym that doesn't resemble what you get in the fights. Now, again, it speaks to your question, but also, like, he has another gear in a more comfortable way he could go to under different scenarios. I'm trying to think. In, in all honesty, like, most... I would say that the times that you you see fighters who don't have styles that match their personality, it is typically um, when they're in the middle of transitioning to something away from who they are. Like John Jones used to be a guy who was watching stuff on YouTube and throwing spinning this and crazy that is because he didn't really know what he was doing. He was just kind of grabbing information where he could get it. And then they go into a more polished version. And sometimes that transition takes, you know, less so for him, but sometimes that transition kind of takes time where guys become more polished versions of themselves. John has faced criticism like, oh, did Greg Jackson make him boring or something, right? That that has certainly been a talking point at, at various times. Um, so anyway, you get caught in that middle stage. You can't get a good read on them either where they're trying to both speak to who they are, but also a more intelligent approach that isn't necessarily secured by just their natural instincts and what they like. Um, I have not heard this, but let's see here. Luke, did you hear Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Addendum episode, Boxing with Ghosts? I have not. He has Mike Silver on, and they make the argument that of all sports, boxing is one where greats of the past could still compete with the top fighters of today. They go on to list factors such as weight class, strength of schedules, training methods, and more. And compared to the NFL, MLB, and other sports where greats of the past wouldn't stand a chance today. Even if you didn't hear that episode, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the general basis of the argument. So it's not so difficult to understand. I mean, in certain ways, athletes are bigger, stronger, faster. And of course, it's weight class controlled. But even still, um, you know. You just have more people worldwide participating. You're going to get a better caliber of athlete over time as a consequence. So that is in play but if you ever go to a boxing gym man like they're very spartan they're dirty there's duct tape on the heavy bags or at least some of them anyway like they the method the methodology of training is not super expensive to acquire um and it's relatively straightforward like you can use old school methods and still get really great results i mean you might there might be some more improved methods in terms of strength and conditioning for the very top pros but in general like these are not places that require a great degree of financial investment um in many cases anyway these are not things that require a great degree of financial upkeep they don't require a great degree of training sophistication i mean yes there has to be a certain level of it to get productive results but these haven't changed radically over time. Some of the rules have changed, right? We went from 15 to 12 rounds. The gloves have changed, obviously, over time and whatnot. There's been some meaningful differences, and those things are important. But I can honestly see why, up to a certain point anyway, why folks feel like 
previous generations, particularly like your, you know, your late 70s, early 80s type guys, even some to the 90s to an extent, but even be certainly before that, you know, your your era of Sugar Ray Leonard's, Marvin Hagler's, those kinds of, I mean, that kind of era, and obviously even predating that in the heavyweight division with Foreman, Ali, and Frazier, and Shavers, and you name it, um, and then Julian Jackson, like, you took those guys at that time and you put them in gyms today, would they overperform relative to how they did in their heyday? I, I think they would do probably pretty well. So at a very commensurate level, right? It would not be a dramatic change really at all. Um, so there's a question of like, is there a way to change and improve boxing uh, tactics and strategies? Is there a way to really move this, the, this, the sport forward? Again, it's one thing I've mentioned. I have noticed, and this is a small, small thing. I'm just pointing it out. But I have noticed the younger boxers these days much more inclined to stance switch routinely through fights almost like mma fighters do um you know how much that can really meaningfully move the sport forward tactically when it's been around for very long it's 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 pretty advanced tactically in terms of like what, what the current state of information is um maybe maybe there, there might be alterations over time but it just feels to me like jujitsu is undergoing a lot of change mma is undergoing a lot of change these are these are way newer sports and this explosion is happening where you're getting this constant change over time um i just described some of the things that craig jones was talking about and just would have one small example but there are innumerable ones it feels like boxing is a little bit more in a space where most of the innovations given the rule set have largely been discovered with some tweaking, some changing, some adaptations that are possible competitively to win, but wholesale changes within the course of 10 years just doesn't seem on the table. Whereas with jujitsu in, in 10 years, um, who the hell knows what it could look like. Also, jujitsu has so many different forms between gi and no gi and points versus sub only or whatever. Uh, this one didn't get a thumbs up. I want to go with the ones that got thumbs up. Oh, good question. What would it take for you to leave the MMA business and focus on a different career? Not much. Not much, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I wouldn't want to make a trade-off in the amount of money. But to be candid, man, like all of this, dude, all of this is going to go away. None, of, No one will ever remember anything I do uh, at any point. People are like, I want to leave a legacy, dude. In 100 years, 200 years, no one's going to remember a fucking thing about anything that we're doing here. You, to, to be lasting in history, you have to be Napoleon. You have to be these incredible figures that are transcendental in the most you know, ob obscene ways. And even then, there is the inability to, to, to last. This idea, like, I want to leave something to be remembered by. Like, this, this sort of vanity of folks thinking about you in your death it's just a complete waste of time. Yo, I want to make enough money to be comfortable while I'm here and uh, take care of my family. And that's really about it, man. Like if I could get some kind of business where I could own, you know, I don't know, franchise, I could own a bunch of Chick-fil-A's and call it a day, I'd be, I'd be out. I'd be out. I'd be out quickly. Um, you know, but that's really not in the cards. It's not something I'm pursuing. It's, but like, what would it take? I, I've gotten a lot out of this business and I'm happy to get more if there is. But at the same time, like, uh, like, what do I want with the rest of my life? I would like to be comfortable and around people that love me. And I don't, whatever I could get that could facilitate that I would take, you know, again, assuming I'm not like making a major trade down in some kind of way. All right. 
Do you enjoy calling the fights for Showtime? Yes, I do. Do you enjoy any research on the prelim fighters? Yeah, some of them. Some of them are there. Like, there's a lot of, you know, the matchmaking can be all over the place, but sometimes, sure. Um, yeah, we didn't get to hear the, that's right, we didn't get to that. That's in Barboza defeating Billy Q. I was blown away by that. Uh, someone goes, on Wednesday show, UNBC believe the purple mark on Bryce Mitchell was a bruise, but many believe it was purple iodine spray. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay, here we go. Uh, yes, leading up to one championship's USA, USA debut, have you watched MMA on Points video covering one's hydration test? Yes, I have. Subsequently leading to an interview with a doctor that admits to helping one fighters cheat the test. Yes, I did. Further goes into how easy it is in a second video of said doctor performing a weight cut and cheating the hydration test. Yes, your thoughts. Um, listen, I think one, I've said this a million times, I think one is the true genuine alternative to the UFC because of how they structure their product. It's not, the, they don't have the same MMA roster as potentially I would say Bellator probably has a better MMA roster, but because they do so many different things at one with their sub grappling and their four ounce Muay Thai and in a cage and in a ring. And then they're in Thailand and they're not, they're much more of a martial arts kind of promoter with a, maybe a specialty in MMA a focus anyway, but that gives them access to much more world-class talent and a truly differentiated product. And then on top of it, as you all know, uh, with their rule set is different with knees to the head of a grounded opponent. The judging is different. Like I think their product is very compelling. I, I, I like it. I hope it's a big success quite candidly um, tomorrow. Uh, but they also just do just a bunch of bullshit for PR that folks have just not been nearly as um, inquisitive about as they should have been. Like they come out and make grand proclamations about uh, any number of things. They get it gets discovered that they're like hemorrhaging money. They're able to raise a significant amount, but they're hemorrhaging money. And then they're asked about it, and and Chachi Sityotong consistently dismisses it. They introduce hydration, weight cutting. Uh, hydration uh, testing and then uh, to, to to combat weight cutting after they had an unfortunate death um, years ago. And, you know, trying to get guys to be closer to their natural weight, I think, is certainly an admirable thing. But if you're going to do it, you have to do it with something where there's a great degree of scientific validity to it. We, we've known for quite some time. Here was your clue that you knew that something was not above board. They, for a long time, didn't film any of these weigh-ins or really show any way in which this could be verified by a third party. They just assumed people would look the other way. And for a long time, people did. And then they said to start filming them and they had to start making these more public in anticipation of their U.S. debut. And they had just endless amounts of issues. Like it doesn't do what it purports to do. And it's much easier to get around than otherwise indicated. So listen, if that's the case with it, I appreciate the attempt at trying to do something different. But what is the fucking point? What is the point? It doesn't test for what they say it doesn't test for. And it's and it's relatively easy to beat. Like, end of argument. Why are we doing this? Um, so that's sort of my, my view on the whole thing. And if you haven't seen the video from MMA on point, you should go check it out. I mean, they basically talk about the, the like, it's not just that you can beat this test. Like, only a dumbass couldn't is really the way that they were describing it. Like, it, it's like comically easy to beat that and still cut all kinds of weight. We've seen it too. Where there's, like, you see two guys in there and you're like, how the fuck are they in the same weight class? And I mean, not even a big one where there's like, you know, 205 and you can get some variants. Like, you look at guys who are supposed to be 155ers, you're like, Jesus Christ, they don't look like they're like, they look like a welterweight versus a, 
uh, a featherweight. Like, it's just shocking. And it's because that whole system just doesn't do what they say it's going to do. God only knows what they do for drug testing. You know me, I don't really care about that. But again, does it match the rhetoric? I, I, I mean, this is sort of the problem with one. It's like, do, do they have got a dynamic product? I mean, I again, I, I really, really enjoy it. Uh, but the people in charge of it, they're just not good stewards of its messaging in public. Um, they're not great at it. Um, here's the other part too. Like it's fight week for them. And all we're talking about is Chatri shitting on Francis for no good reason. All right. After Chatri came out and said that Francis was asking for a board seat, it got me thinking, here's what you should be thinking. Don't accept any of that. Don't accept any of that. Guys, what have these major promoters done that make you comfortable in accepting what they tell the public through the media? I don't I don't I don't get that. Like any of them, any of them. Now there be there might be certain times where they say something for example, Dana White after a fight will come down and be like, okay, the attendance was like 20,000, the gate was blah, blah, blah. Right, you can verify that with the Athletic Commission. So, you know, even if you don't want to take his word for it, it's easily verifiable. But that's something that you can reasonably trust. But getting sideways with a fighter and then, or you know, being able to come to some kind of business arrangement or having view them in some kind of scornful role, and then a promoter coming out and talking about them, dude, you should never, never, accept that at face value ever 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 don't do it not in boxing not in mma nothing don't do that it doesn't mean that every part of it is wrong or it's all wrong or i'm saying they're all always lying it's not exactly what i'm saying what i am saying is there are enough pieces of information left out there are enough sometimes lies there are enough half truths where you have to just say okay i'm listening to this and i hear that but until i can get some kind of way to verify this. These people are not truthful enough that they necessitate getting the benefit of the doubt from you. Especially in that scenario where it's like promotion versus fighter. Again, for whatever permutation set that up. You are under no obligation to believe any of that. And I made up the point yesterday on, on, on MK. And again, I'm not even mad at the guy. I'm not, I'm not blasting him, but Scott Coker saying that he, they were, Bellator was involved with Nate Diaz, and then I think Arrow reported, and I heard the same thing privately, of all the people that they did hear from when Nate Diaz left the UFC, Bellator was not one of them. But of course, Coker knows how, because he's, he's been around. He knows how the game is played. If he just says something, the media will amplify it without any verification, and it just becomes part of the news cycle, even though it's like, there's, there's like literally nothing to it. And this happens all the time with the UFC, with one, with you name it, with PFL. All the promoters do it to some degree, some more than others, some worse than others. One is one of the worst ones in, the, in this particular regard. You don't need to believe this until it's independently proven at all. And in fact, I would strongly caution not to give it much weight. Strongly. You know, the idea that Francis went in there and did these things and the only person telling you that is the promoter is like red flag city. <laughs> you know, I just, you have zero obligation to believe that. None, none whatsoever. Someone asking, will UFC implement uh, martial arts competitions like one is doing? Never. Not, okay. Not while Dana White is there. 
he has been pretty pretty outspoken that he doesn't want that kind of stuff associated with the UFC product for not bad reasons necessarily actually so but again that just gives another promoter the opportunity to get in onto that territory so it's not the end of the world why didn't you or BC pull this one up why didn't you or BC ask about uh, the implosion of Jackson Wink with Greg seemingly stepping back from coaching and Wink taking over because I wasn't really interested in his take on those other parts of the like the story of Jackson Wink. I want to make it as much about Rashad as we could. And so his story with Jackson Wink, I mean, it's in some ways ongoing, but in general, it ends at a certain point in time when he leaves them to go to the Black Zillions. I know he had reconciliation with them. We did talk about that, but his time at that gym as a participant ended basically then. So then the story becomes about the black. It, 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 in terms of my my wants for that interview, it turns then to the black zillions and everything else that comes subsequent to that. So it's a fair point. Like it's not it's not it's not an uninteresting thing to ask or 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 irrelevant. It'd be great to ask about it, but um, it just wasn't what we wanted for the interview. Oh, here's an interesting one. Luke, I just wanted to let you know I didn't know who you were until the UFC 214 press conference. Without Jones dunking on you, I wouldn't be watching MK or your live chat today. Yeah, fair enough. I, mean, I suppose it has a way of – it's. I, I hate that this is true in the MMA game, but it really is true. You can get just as famous and, like, rich from, you know, good things or bad things happening to you. It's – you know, or things that are that are great for your image, things that are bad for your image. Like it's really weird how in fight sports, like, and I get it. Like you know, all attention is or good attention, bad attention is just attention in the end. I guess I just sort of hate that our economy or our our industry works that way, but it does. It does work that way. You have to just kind of accept it. Uh, okay, great question. Glad you asked. Luke, how much would you agree with, in general, uh, MMA media and casuals, excuse me, how much would you agree with, oh, sorry, with general MMA media and casuals that Francis has fumbled the bag in failing us to secure a new promotion? Probably not fucking at all, because that's a horrible dog shit argument. And how much longer do you think he has before his inactivity starts to impact on the types of deals brought to the table? Now, that's more relevant. Uh, where do you most realistically see him going given the recent news? Me gusta todo que haces por las artes marciales. Gracias desde España. Thank you, Jake. Okay. You can hear you can hear Tuki just screaming. She might come in here. There's nothing I can do. All right. Let's answer this question. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's answer this question. How much would you agree with general MMA media and casuals that Francis has fumbled the bag in failing to secure a new promotion. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Zero. Zero. None. I would not agree with it at all. Um, I don't think it's even remotely true. I think he got an offer on the table from UFC, and that's now the baseline for negotiations. Everything will go up from there. BKFC wanted to be in in partnership with them and i know that their financial situation is going to be at least in theory changing soon with the full thriller takeover happening as well as some kind of television deal that could send them a lifeline but as it stands to make the last event happen they felt been confirming it to put up not one but two mortgages to make that happen again i appreciate what they felt trying to do i'm not bagging on him and saying that's a bad thing that he did that if it all ends up working out for him in the end certainly 
But what I, oh my God. But what I am pointing out, what I am trying to explain is that they're not in a financial position to make better on the UFC's offer. Like, and also how mainstream can bare knuckle boxing really be? There's sort of a big question about that. So they're not, to think that they were a likely destination is absurd. Then you go over to one, which, you know, again, what is the actual truth? You can decide for yourself over time. The idea to me that that's a good fit for him also never made sense. I think he wants to be a bigger product in North America, which, of course, he would have been something for them in that regard to break into this market in a similar way that they tried to use Demetrius and Eddie Alvarez and Sage Northcutt. But I think he wants a player who's already more established in the pay-per-view market, anyone who can do pay-per-view more nimbly right, ready to go in that way, that's not really one championship. They're sort of much more based in a different physical and geographical location, and they're not really pay-per-view players. Also, who the fuck is he going to fight, right? There's just really no one. You could say Arjun Buller. I, I don't think it's a great fight for Buller. I think Francis probably wins that. The one that actually is interesting, of actually of all the names, is their uh, interim champ and their light heavyweight champ, same guy, and it's only Malikin. And it's only Malikin, actually, to me, is a really interesting fight. Fine. That would be cool as shit, but no one knows who he is. They're not going to make a dime on pay-per-view in that way. And then who else? Bouchesha? Like, Bouchesha is really not ready for that kind of a test. That would just be a complete waste of everyone's time. It's just not a good fit. It's not a good fit. They're not ready to go pay-per-view players. They don't really have the roster. They're really sort of focused on a different part of the world. And that's all fine, but they're just not a great destination for him. Now, you might be saying PFL is not a great destination either, but there's a couple of things that they really have going for them. One, they're able to raise insane amounts of capital. I mean, just gigantic amounts in ways that is surprising, but true. Secondly, I, sh I don't think anyone should lose sight of the fact that they're trying to acquire Bellator. I mean, Bellator and PFL getting together would, would dramatically change the equation for fighters of francis's magnitude in terms of where they could go and what kind of checks they could command by itself also doesn't change the scenario you still have all the best heavyweights typically somewhere else in the ufc but um it'd be securing a situation where they have francis and they would have seemingly um a much not just for francis but they would have a much greater roster to attract other free agents to make more compelling fights that they could then sell on pay-per-view for whatever dollar amount they want to sell like they're just a much better fit financially and again dude pfl can't live in the current state of what they're doing where they can't make any money on pay-per-view and they have these fights that do you know reasonably well on television they have like a decent roster and in certain cases like a really good good roster but they that that is a path to financial collapse if they just keep doing what they have they won't make it now they might make it a little while longer because they'll have financial runway but you should we should be very clear what they have existing today is insufficient for survival Okay, so what they're clearly doing is they're saying, let's push all of our chips to the middle. Let's go get this monster free agent. Let's see if we can go get another organization, arguably their competitor, arguably the organization with the best roster in MMA outside of the UFC. Let's put all that together and let's really make a push because there might be money in that model. Clearly what they have right now is insufficient. But again, as I mentioned, they can raise capital. PFL makes much more sense. For Francis than any of these other scenarios. But you know, again, the Malikin fight would be my favorite fight. But in terms of what Francis needs, in terms of what PFL is also trying to do, um, that's a much better fit. That makes way more sense than anything else. So that he may again, that seems to be the dominant player that he may end up there is um uh, not that surprising. Again, if it now if they don't acquire Bellator or they're sort of stuck with the way that they have it. 
you know, I think that Francis might end up getting the better of that deal, but that's not Francis's problem. That's PFL's problem. And also, if again, if PFL doesn't make it, it's not because Francis and Ganu took their money. It's because the product that they have, even he couldn't inject enough life into to save, right? Because it's just it doesn't work long term. You you have to have enough talent um, to sell pay-per-views basically, or do tremendous television ratings on a simpler model, but uh, they don't have either of those. So they, they need something along those lines. Francis is at least not by himself the solution, but he could be a big player for them in getting to the next space. So everyone keeps making it out to be like, Francis is knocking on these doors and these guys are saying no to him. It's really the other way around. These guys are knocking on Francis's door and he's like, no, thanks. I'm good. And you know, this idea that like, <laughs> Francis has fumbled the bag. Get the fuck out of here. The places he said no to, they were, they were never going to get his services. It was never going to happen. Never. Now, if PFL told him to go pound sand, that's a different story. Now he, I think, would have a different situation. But I think he told one to, to you know, thanks but no thanks because he already had the comfort of whatever's going to happen with that. Um you know, and that doesn't even include whatever boxing deal he's going to get. People saying that this has been fumbled in what fucking way? The only way that you could say it's been fumbled is because it has gone. It's been so long since he fought, and because everyone in this industry is conditioned to rally for the monopolist, right? What is Francis doing? He's getting in the way of that, according to what you hear out there. They want to tell you that Francis fumbled it up uh, and fumbled it. He didn't fumble shit. What he did do was fuck shit up for certain kinds and a big swath of fans who want to see everything under one umbrella, simple, delivered to them, nice and easy, every week, reliable. He broke that. That's what he, that's the crime he's guilty of. He's guilty of breaking the banquet food assembly line that makes for the continuous action you get week after week. And so in this particular case, the bigger, the bigger fights that come once a month, basically he, he disrupted that. That's the, that's the penalty that he's paying for trying to seek his freedom is that it comes it's, it's about nothing else. It's there's not a shred of anything else happening here. This process has been defined by the people speaking the loudest, which have been scorned promoters, UFC, BKFC one scorned promoters right that's what that's that's trying to tell you who, 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 who they're the ones trying to tell you this has gone poorly and it's like no indication that that's true at all zero if he ends up getting some shitty deal with pfl we can revisit this i don't have complete information but like <laughs> the only part of this that's i think fans have a you know somewhat of an understanding i can be i can i can understand and media too their frustration has just been so long since he competed people will begin to move on from him and i i understand that part like he needs to sign a deal i think and get this process moving fair enough that part i can understand like absence in this case may not make the heart grow fonder but but like is he fumbling it the only people who are telling you that are people who are cheerleading monopoly simple as that it, there's no other explanation for it. Francis upset the assembly line of food, and they don't like that. There's no other explanation. I watched this industry do the exact same shit. And it was different circumstances because he tried to pull this shit like I'm retiring from a contract, which didn't really work. But 
Couture had many, many issues with UFC over time and many falling outs. And I'm telling you, guys, time is a flat circle. Look at me. Look at me very clearly and closely. Do you think Francis is the last guy they're going to do this to? Do you? You believe that? No matter the circumstances, do you believe that this ends with Francis? They'll never do this to another guy. This is really about him. This is really about all the alleged mistakes he's made. Do you believe that? You shouldn't. Stick around this sport long enough, and I'm telling you, all of this shit repeats itself over time, over time, over time, again and again. It looks slightly different this way, slightly different that way. Francis Ngannou is not the last guy they're going to do this to. Period. <laughs> it's not going to be that way at all. Unless he ushers in some revolution or something. You know, short of that, which I don't think he's going to do that, uh, just wait. Some other top star is going to say, I don't want to be in the UFC anymore. They're going to leave and watch the reruns. It's a flat circle, folks. Oh, I want to say something, too. Someone asked me last week about, I, I, I still haven't even seen it, but some of the language Izzy was using, like, was it racist? Probably so, and I was a little bit too dismissive of it. Here's the only thing I would say. Again, personally speaking, I would just be lying to you if I said I feel injured when someone calls me a cracker. I honestly think it's fucking hilarious. It just doesn't. It, it isn't to say that there's no forms of racial discrimination against whites. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that version of it, it doesn't injure me. Like getting called a cracker, it doesn't. I, I don't. I don't feel anything. I'd be lying. I'd be lying to you. Like oh, I'm so mad. About, I'm not. I doesn't. Doesn't feel anything. However, someone had wrote me in, and they were like, basically, the point is like, either all of it's okay or none of it's okay, and uh, I, I think it's pretty reasonable. So, if I was a little bit flippant about it last week, I do want to say that I, I thought more about it. I did get some pretty excellent feedback, and um, yeah, it, it he it, sh it should be condemned. He should not be doing that. Like, it's unacceptable. Yes, I agree. Uh, speaking of which, here we go. Luke, I see folks sometimes heckle you online about your love of CKB, Izzy, and Volk. What are you doing to keep natural biases in check when you're giving analysis or, or curating content involving them? Also, did CKB specifically ask you not to do a breakdown bit of Izzy's loss to Alex? No. Thank you for the great content. No. They have, I've never, I've had fighters reach out to me to ask. I had one on vacation ask me to reach, um, uh, to look at some of his footage for him. But uh, no, they've, on, I don't have a Bible, but if I did, or a holy book, uh, no, they've never reached out to me to ever ask me to hold anything or do anything for them. I have no formal relationship. I don't even, dude, I don't really talk to them. I, uh, I tried to get an interview with Eugene Behrman, like the last couple times Izzy fought, couldn't get in contact with him. I don't know if I have the wrong number or, or if he just doesn't want to talk to me. I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but either way, um, I haven't spoken to anyone from that team. I, I haven't spoken to anyone from that team since I did the Izzy and then Alex Volkanovsky interviews roughly around the same time around 281 that's the last time i spoke to someone on that team and then before that i couldn't even tell you so no i don't have any formal relationship in terms of keeping my biases in check number one it's letting you guys know i have biases i recognize them i uh, i want you to know that i 
Um, that doesn't mean I can say what and do whatever I want, but I want to be clear that I have preferences in certain ways, and that's just being human. But at least you know where I'm coming from, and that allows you to make a better decision about what I'm telling you. And then on top of that, I just try as best I can to see things as fairly as possible. I don't really have a system to enforce that other than how would I look at this if I so-and-so was in this team or in this circumstance. And, you know, like, for example, like when Dan Hooker was saying all the stuff about Islam and he wasn't providing any public evidence, I didn't take CKB's side in that one at all. I, I was like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, either produce evidence or stop saying stuff like this publicly, like just slandering people like that or i, mean, I don't know if that's the legal word but um just saying that kind of shit like that i don't think is a great idea no um thoughts on the steven crowder situation like which one my man's going through it uh okay great here we go i'll do this one and then we'll get to the paid questions there Luke, can you talk about the recent incident in the New York City subway where a 24-year-old Marine, I think he was a former Marine, choked a homeless man to death in self-defense and to date has not been charged? Well, we shall see. I mean, even during this chat, I don't know what's going to happen. The, the The government there is under significant uh, pressure to do something more. Whether they will or they won't, we shall see. Okay, a couple of caveats. Number one, I've spent the majority of my life in cities. American cities, obviously, but cities just the same. I live in Washington, D.C. I've been taking the subway, or the, they call it the metro here. I've been taking the metro here since the 1980s. Um, and I lived in New York for three years, and I've been commuting back regularly. Uh, you guys know that for more than 20 years at this point. Um, I moved to New York in 2002, uh, moved back in 2005, and I've been going back, you know, I mean, I, I, in 2019, I went to New York two times a week for 50 weeks. Like, and I had to take the subway every single time I did that. Like, I've been taking the subway there a long time. Um, so, put my cards on the table. I think there's a lot of people who don't live in cities, who don't ride the, the New York City or even any kind of subway. And they've got certain feelings about it. Like, honestly, I, I can respect that to an extent. But unless you're a native New Yorker, you probably don't have more subway experience than me. Most of you watching this. Okay, so I've been riding the New York City subways a long time. Used to live off the six um on the two three i used to take the two three every morning down to world trade center the world trade center i had to hop on the path train take the path train all the way to newark work in newark and then come back take the path train go back to world trade center then go back and take the two three to go live because i used to live at 80th and amsterdam in the upper west side all right so i am intimately familiar with the new york city subway system beyond just the confines of manhattan you know you get it. I've seen it. When people complain about um, the amount of homeless and the uh, unruliness of them, they're telling the truth. They're telling the truth. Like, we should ve be very honest about it. You guys know how much I have disparaged the New York City <laughs> subway system because of how absolutely dirty it is i mean it's just so filthy it's unbelievable but it is handy in terms of getting you from place to place so you kind of just live with it and you move along but when people tell you that like there are a a lot of homeless on there and it's not just ones who are walking around sometimes you'll see them camped out at the back of a car a train car they come between train cars which you can't really do as nimbly in the dc metro but you can do it very easily in new york city um you know there's they're telling the truth they're telling the truth so we should be very clear about that. It is a serious problem. Okay, but dude, I mean, you just got to be fucking kidding me with some of this stuff. 
I mean, there's so many layers to the story that are just beyond disturbing that I cannot believe we're even having a fucking debate over this. Guys, let's just start with some of the basics here, right? Um, he was held in, according to reports, now to the extent that, I, by the way, I'm not an expert in, I'm not even, I'm not, I'm deeply unqualified to speak about the legality of it in New York. Who the fuck knows? Ask someone else. Um, okay. Guys, the reports that I've seen have said that he was held in that rear naked choke position for 15 minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, it, not a person on earth could live through that. Not one. We're talking about a choke that when applied correctly under the... Uh, um, auspices of an expert takes about three to four seconds, right? And maybe like 30 at most if you have to really kind of wrench it and stuff, right? I mean, these are very, very effective chokes when applied correctly, which tells me that it probably wasn't applied correctly, but certainly enough to do fucking damage because it took his life, okay? Guys, there's only two possibilities with the 15-minute consideration. One is they were trying to kill the guy. I'm not saying that that is exactly what it is, but I'm giving you, there's just a range of possibilities. One is if you know anything about that position and the rear naked choke, you know that 15 minutes will fucking kill a guy. So either they were trying to kill a guy or they didn't know that and he was deploying techniques, dangerous techniques, that he had no business deploying was quite literally overkill and a man lost his life for it. It is extremely unpersuasive to me that that was not merely an appropriate solution, but the only one. I it's just not really realistic at all. He was not only from the video that I've seen, he was held in a rear naked choke position, not like fully, you know, BJ Penn in his prime, but enough to give the guy problems. And then there was another passenger who was use, employing wrist control. So the guy couldn't even hand fight, right? He had his arms like out here. And then there's another guy behind him grabbing his neck. And this went on and on and on and on to the point where they fucking killed him. Intentionally or otherwise, they killed him. I mean, that's how he died, right? So, again, what the legality of that is, is to me, I don't know. I couldn't possibly tell you. I, I don't know. the I don't understand the laws around violence in this country very well. But even in blue states and blue cities, who the fuck knows? But the idea that that was an appropriate outcome and that that was the inevitable outcome and that is a justifiable outcome is so deeply unpersuasive to me. If you don't know what the fuck you are doing with those particular holds or chokes, deploying them in that way is so fucking irresponsible to the point where yeah, you can kill a guy doing it, right? They, I, I don't know about his the, the, the gentleman's motives. Maybe he genuinely thought he was trying to do a good thing. I'm not... I cannot speak to his motivations. And maybe he thought he did do a good thing. I don't know. Maybe you think he did a good thing. Again, there's, there's, I get that people are coming to the situation from a lot of different perspectives. I'm simply trying to tell you it is either that they tried to kill the guy or they were so out of their depth in involving themselves in the situation that they acted negligently in a way to kill him. Those are your only two possibilities here. There is, oh, I was trying to, you know, do a good thing and I thought this was fine. Yeah, you thought a lot of things in a situation you were not invited to, you don't have the training to be involved in, and now look at the result. But there's really a lot more to the story, and I'm actually going to leave the racial dynamics utterly alone because I don't think I have anything to uh, constructively add to that. But I will say some other things. Guys, homeless people are the downstream issues from complete mismanagement 
right? I mean, these are issues that, we frankly, just tell you that this is really a us versus them scenario in terms of um, wealth. It's a, it's not ex- exclusively related to, but there is so much um, data around uh, what happens when housing becomes in short supply and it becomes um, incredibly expensive. Obviously, it's more than that. It can be associated with, obviously, drug use and other forms of mental illness. I get that. But these are downstream situations from a lack of effective governance and or care, right? These homeless people, no one dropped them off from another planet or pulled them from the Midwest in these small farm towns and then dropped them in New York City or dropped them in Washington, D.C. or dropped them in Atlanta or L.A. or San Diego or whatever. You get the idea. They didn't just happen by accident. They are there as a result of the policies that we have put into place over time and have been exacerbated more recently where there's now yet more visible homeless or has turned to like dystopian levels in some of these major cities. Um, DC has had some of the problem with it. They've made some impact. Mayor Bowser, believe it or not, there she, there's good things about her. There's bad things about her. I think she has. they have tried to introduce a program here locally that connects people in these ho- housing encampments with work, with dedicated, ready-to-go, brand-new housing. The program has seen about a third of those entering it, staying in it, meaning two-thirds drop out, but it has made a dent um, locally. But getting back to this scenario, understand that these are human beings. I mean, the lack of empathy for these guys who are having mental episodes, who are desperately poor, I mean, poor to the nth degree, mentally ill to the nth, in certain cases, to the nth degree, and they are there by no accident. People keep trying to turn homelessness into individual moral failure. And of course, over time, you will see certain examples of that. But we we just know it's so much more complicated than that. These are downstream situations from problems that our government, whether it's your party in there or mine or someone else's, simply seems uninterested in solving. And I know what folks are going to tell you, oh my God, look at the budget for this, look at the budget for that. This is just fucking nonsense. The level of investment we have per capita, per person for these programs, whether it's in blue states like New York and LA or even red ones like Georgia and Florida, in particular places like Texas and Florida, the amount of investment compared to like actually like Nordic countries is like a fraction, a fraction of what they introduce. Like you have to understand something about the defund the police movement, which I do not support, but they have one part of that, what they say that I do think is correct. One part of it, which is... Turning poverty, uh, or I should say using law enforcement to combat poverty is a failed endeavor. It simply will not work. To this point, how many arrests did this guy have? 40 plus arrests, including being on the run for, well, not on the run, but whatever he was for felony assault. Guys, did the law enforcement system make that situation better? And so what is the idea? That just throwing these guys in jail, like, just turning a homeless into prison pipeline and this carceral thinking, this is the enlightened way out of this problem. This seems to me like utterly backwards. We have created a situation where we have allowed these problems to fester and they're real. They're real. These problems are, are very real, but we have allowed them to fester without adequate solution. We don't want to actually invest in ourselves in a way that would meaningfully address them, certainly make significant contributions to solving the problem it turns into this one where you've got this guy utterly failed by the american healthcare system utterly failed by the american judicial system utterly failed by the american educational system i mean he is a walking indictment 
of maybe his own personal failures, but the failures of the ability and the system to care for people like him. He is a he does not exist in a vacuum. He is a product of these failed policies. And unless we can muster the political will to invest in ourselves up front as a way to um, meaningfully address childhood hunger, as a way to meaningfully address educational attainment and, and uh, meaningfully address uh, income inequality. Like, you guys can keep your culture wars about who the fuck is promoting Bud Light. I don't give a shit. I want to know what the fuck people are going to do about housing capacity and YIMBY laws and zoning. I want to know... I want to know about access to healthcare. I want to know about things that can meaningfully improve the lives of people that the government is actually in a position to do something about. Doing nothing but creating a situation where homeless people actually grow in number or become certainly more destitute with these encampments and saying this is strictly their fault when we have good reason, very good reason to believe and know that is a simplistic response. And then deputizing ourselves to kill these fucking guys on the subway when they actually didn't even in his particular circumstance i realized he was a violent guy or you know whatever the situation was with him uh but in that particular regard hadn't hadn't actually attacked anyone and now we're deputizing ourselves to kill this guy and then say this is a, an appropriate solution to the problem this is so fucked i don't even know i mean it's so morally backwards i don't even know how to like what it just seems absurd to me but utterly absurd. And I'm going to say one more thing. There are many, like, two more things. One, this idea that, like, this, this Marine acted heroically. Maybe he did. There are pieces of information we don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I, I tend to think I don't buy that at all, but okay. I've been riding the New York City subway for about 20 fucking years. How many times have I had to intervene because a homeless person got crazy? One time. A guy, I was in the back of the, the train. This was, I was taking the N train. Uh, I was in the back of it, and there was a guy that came on, some homeless dude, and he gets on. He's like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, blah, blah, blah. They do this speech, and no one responded. And he fucking starts screaming, like these guys sometimes do. And he took his hat off, and he's whipping it around, and he spun around, and he hit this woman in the face with it. And a bunch of us got up at that point because he hit her, he hit her pretty hard. Like he didn't draw blood, but she had like a red mark on her face at the next stop. And she was crying. It was an older um, um, uh, lady. And so it was just, a, it was a mess. And so we kind of got around her in, in, in uh, like putting distance. And then at the next stop, we like told the fucking guy to get off. And then, you know, tried to wave down one of the guys who worked there. I don't know if it worked or not, but like that guy was an asshole, right? That guy was, was awful. He didn't deserve to die for that he didn't deserve to die for that and the idea that like and i'm sure he you think that guy hasn't been in and out of new york city prisons and if he's still even alive like i mean let's be serious like he didn't deserve to die for that and the last thing i want to say or two things about this you know this guy the marine you know again we'll have to see what exonerating circumstances eventually materialize or not but guys like Maybe you don't want to say it as civilians, like because he's a Marine, he's like in a morally exalted position. You, I, I'm not encumbered by that delusion. Yeah, some of the Marines I served with afterwards, many of them, most of them even, ended up being really great contributors to society and some in profound ways. A lot of them were fucking dirtbags and were just awful. Guys, I had to stop talking to about a dozen of the Marines I served with when the Iraq War started because on their Facebook pages, they were posting artwork from the fucking crusades like 
this idea that like, oh, he was a Marine, he must know better. No, that's a guy who could know better, we'll have to see. But because he's a Marine, that doesn't make his judgment all of a sudden great. It makes him a guy who has been taught that violence is a swift and powerful and therefore a good adjudicator of dispute. That's what that taught him. Taught him that he isn't it, that you can use violence to swiftly adjudicate dispute. And because it is swift and because it is so clear, it is therefore good. When in fact, sometimes swift violence can be great. A lot of times it is actually the opposite of what you really want. So this idea that because he's a Marine, he must have had good training about it and like clear motives. Maybe we, we will only see in time, but because he is a Marine, he is not, he is not entitled to that. And I say that as a fucking United States Marine. So you can you can you can bring your little pogue criticisms to me about that if you want. One of us fucking served. I have the right to say it. The last thing I want to say on this is, I mean, I have grown. I, I there there is research that has been released. It's not new. Robert Putnam has been talking about this since bowling alone, but it has only gotten worse, and in different ways. The sort of like disintegration of community in the United States and. Um, I've made this point before, like I, I'm very much not of the belief that we have, we have grown more paranoid. We have grown more isolated. We have grown more antisocial. I think we've grown angrier in all versions of, of the political spectrum. Um, and it has revealed itself in various kinds of moral failings. I think deputizing ourselves to kill the homeless on the subway is a great example of that, but a more clear one would be, be that we just let kids get murdered in schools and we're not doing really anything about it. Uh, this is, a, uh, I won't say a unique problem to the United States, but we are the unique problem relative to, except third world nations, basically. I mean, the amount, we, we just allow young children to be butchered in schools without meaningfully addressing it. Like guys are ringing doorbells and getting shot for it. Uh, you know, like I can point to any number of things where we not just glorify uh, vigilantism, vigilantism, but more than that, this social fraying, this disconnect has only made us more violent, more angry, more willing to see situations like that through a violent lens to solve it because we are angrier and further apart and um, and there's less there's less community and frankly, less just sort of general contentment and happiness going around this is a layered scenario that is beyond just like and people are like what about these other scenarios where people get hurt when you know homeless on the metro yeah yeah do the homeless on the metro are a fucking problem like i'm not telling you it's not they're not a fucking problem it's a problem i'm telling you the solution for it is not that we should allow former uh law enforcement or former military to choke them to death uh we're using tools they either don't know how to use or use inappropriately to do so. I don't, I just, that seems like a really fucking dark place um, to go to. The last thing I'll say is guys, if you live in a major city and you do have mass transit, particularly underground mass transit in places like we have cold climates, the, the Metro system, the subway is the, is the home of last resort. It's the home of last resort. They don't have any other place to go. We want to criminalize their existence and being there. You cannot law enforcement your way out of this problem. You cannot criminalize poverty, criminalize homelessness enough to meaningfully address this if you don't address the actual factors that keep causing shit like this or make these things go unaddressed for long periods of time. Like the guy should never have been arrested 40 times and been on the fucking street. 
but we should have been in, there should have been uh, social services or uh, any other number of um, actors in the space that could have meaningfully addressed this before we ever got to this fucking problem. So, you know, people looking at this and being like, well, he was threatening to the, to the other passengers on the train. So fucking what? So fucking what? And all these people, God, Lee, man, all these fucking people who are like, I felt threatened. Are you fucking, you fucking puss. I got to tell you, man. I got to tell you, all these people, I was in this scenario. I felt threatened. I was in this scenario. I felt threatened. Because why? What do you, what? The... <laughs> I've written that thing for 20 years, man. Like, I'm not saying the homeless are a thing you can just uh, utterly ignore in terms of your security concerns, but like day to day, like, why are you so afraid of everything? Everything. No ability to navigate society on modern terms at all. Like just constant fear, anxiety. Why the fuck are you so afraid of shit? I li- I all these things you hear about on TV. This is dangerous. I live in these fucking places, man. They've got real concerns. They've got real challenges. Like, yeah, of course, we shouldn't look past it. It's not the comic book version you have been led to believe. You know, so if you want to live in a world where people can just deputize themselves to kill the homeless because we just don't have reverence for that kind of life anymore, even though we helped facilitate it with the very policies we put in place, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. All right. With that in mind, let's get to the paid portion here. So again, under no obligation to do it, but if you do it, I'll I get to him here. All right. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name. Alexi Sabliuk. Hello, little greetings from Lithuania. Thank you for all your content. And oh, by the way, 20 euro. Uh, you really helped me to understand a more deep side of MMA and BJJ. I'm 33 and looking for tips on how to preserve knees in BJJ training. Um, check out. There we go. Knee. Oh, oops, wrong side. Knee. Ben Patrick. Knees over toes guy. It's not just for BJJ. It's just for your knees in general. This book is cheap, and you can see his stuff online as well. It'll change your life. Try it. Notice you like my last hardcore recommendation. Just making sure you know about Colombian Hardcore Kings Raw Brigade. I am unaware of them. I am unaware of them. I'll give them a look, but thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. Uh, Luke, how possible is it that Endeavor is one of the potential suitors looking to buy a Bellator? Very possible. I don't think it ends up happening, but it could. Um, I know for a fact Liberty Media is one of them. I know PFL is one of them. I'm I'm told there's like between five and seven total buyers, some closer to the process, some than others. The thing that's weird, (coughs) we don't know if Bellator is going to be sold in entirety and then dissolved. We don't know if part of Bellator is going to be bought. We don't know if all of Bellator is going to be bought and then stay on Paramount. Like, are they going to be bought and then brought somewhere? I mean, there's just a, there's like really, total unknowns here about all the different ways this could go so yeah there are some big players at the at the table but a lot of this depends on whether paramount wants to sell the whole thing a part of it and i don't know what they're going to do i mean these discussions exist you know well above my pay grade um we'll see i'm a huge fan my question is if uh, irene aldana is able to win the belt and those four mexican champions can remain so for long enough could we see UFC 300 in Mexico with four title fights? I guarantee you they've already begun to look for places to put UFC 300. And my feeling is it's probably going to be in Las Vegas no matter what. There's a chance they could put it in another place like New York City or something. But in general, I think it's going to be in Vegas. Okay, uh, Harrison says, 
that's a hilarious Abby. Um, I think Shavkat could be champ, but could he right now with his bad striking defense in boxing range? Yes. It would get, yeah. Mm, yes. Yes, he could do it. How do you think he does against the top five welterweights and middleweights? I don't know about the middleweights. Top five welterweights. How does he do? I think pretty well. Leon is going to be real good about snipering him. That's going to be a problem for him. I think Colby is also an interesting one. Like, because he'll be all over him. Usman, similar kind of thing. But the question with Colby and Usman is, are they fading a little bit? Burns will be an interesting one, but they train together. So I think they know their games really well. Um, so I think he's really, he's up there. I think he's competitive with all of them. But I do agree, the striking defense has got to get better, especially against the guys like Leon and even even Gilbert, who can who are very, very good with timing and accuracy. And he's just walking into range half the time. Uh, what do you think happened to Jeffrey Epstein? I don't know. Do you believe he killed himself? Maybe. Probably not. Or did he just have too many powerful enemies? Well, he definitely had powerful enemies. Did you guys see that Wall Street Journal report that came out this week? Where the, uh, basically, I think it was either the ex-director of the CIA or certainly uh, a high-level official in there had met with him privately. Noam Chomsky had met with him privately. Like a series of like people involved in government and or academia or you know socialite life that had heretofore not been mentioned as part of being in his inner circle it was revealed that they were the noam chomsky one really shocked me i was like whoa noam what the fuck are we doing here guy you know uh and he was like it was to discuss the israel palestine situation i'm like i hope for your sake i hope for your sake if john would reach out himself are you open to an rsd with him um, under certain conditions, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just skeptical he would meet him. Um, but yeah, I don't need it. I'm not. I'm not like. See, I'm not. I'm not going to go out of my way to seek that. I think if he wants to have dialogue, it's incumbent upon him to do it. Uh, and I don't think that he will. So this is not going to happen in all likelihood. But if he were to and if there it was sincere enough uh i would entertain it yes i would entertain it i mean listen dude you know what i want for john and i mean this is what i want for all of you it's what i want for it's all any of us could ask for all i want for him is to be happy and healthy that's it because if you're actually on a path where you can really get the the genuine version of those things, not like I feel good in this moment, but like actual happiness, actual contentment with your life, with the state of it, you know, um, that's, that's really hard to get in this life. It's really, really difficult. So if he can get that, if he can actually, and that would mean probably beating any, any vice or distraction that he had, uh, you know, more significant ones anyway, it would, it would mean a lot of things. It would mean potentially getting right as a parent or whatever. Um, spouse, I don't know. You know, if he can get that, I don't mean unearned happiness. I mean the earned kind. If he can get the earned kind, that who would want to stand in the way of that, you know? If brain damages and serious injuries were somehow avoidable, preventable, so temporary pain was the only drawback. Would you try to compete in MMA? I'm 43. You mean like would I have done it at 24? Probably. Probably. Um, but no, 
Has the recent villainization of Francis Ngannou by MMA fans for standing up for himself been one of the saddest yet predictable turn of events in the sport you've seen? Yeah. Again, watching watching it happen in another cycle. And again, Francis ain't the last one. He ain't the last one. So just wait. Just wait. You will see this movie again. It'll look slightly different here, slightly different there. Yeah. Could I have taken a two-week vacation? I mean, are you asking me like to get off the show? Or are you saying, like, am I capable of taking it? I am capable of taking it. I just didn't. What are five books to understand how the world works? Jesus. Um, how about I show you what I'm reading now? How about that? All right, let's see. Um, let me show you my Kindle. I'm reading. Oh, uh, I just started this yesterday. Here. This is a sick ass quote, too. Bolivar. Um, I, you know what's funny is, I don't know. We didn't learn anything about Latin America when I was in school. When I went to like good, like, you know, I went to public school, but I went to good public schools. Um, you know, my friends went to Georgetown and Columbia. You know, I, 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 was around achievers and we didn't learn anything. Yo, listen to this quote, bro. This someone said this about Bolivar. You can't speak with calm about a person who never knew calm. Of Bolivar, you can only speak from mountaintops or amid thunder and lightning, or with a fistful of freedom in one hand and the corpse of tyranny at your feet. <laughs> That's from Jose Marti. I don't know a whole lot. Listen, look at that. Take a screenshot on that fucking quote. Is that not the sickest quote you've ever heard? You can only talk of Bolivar uh, from mountaintops or amid thunder and lightning with a fistful of freedom in one hand and the corpse of tyranny at your feet. God damn. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, what else do I have? Uh, okay, so what else am I reading? What else am I reading? So aside from that, I'm reading. Here's a great one I just started. Very easy to read. Here, let me pull up the front picture so you can see it. Here we go. This dude makes illustrations, and this book looks um, uh, deceptively simplistic, but it's actually quite brilliant. What's our problem? Tim Urban uh, is a great one. A self, it's called, he calls it a self-help book for society. So he's a bit of a historian. Uh, what else am I reading right now? Oh, I'm about to finish this one. Oh, Jesus Christ. Here we go. I'm about to... Ah! Ah! Uh, okay, well, it's drug use for grownups. I'm about to finish it. And then I'm reading this book right now. Jesus Christ. Here we go. Uh, only because I thought it was kind of interesting. It's in his own words. Akira Kurosawa. Something like an autobiography. Um, this is not really answering your question. I, I'd have to think more about it, but this is what I'm reading right now. All right. What games you playing on Steam? We see the icon. I only play Mortal Kombat. I'm not doing a bit. That's the only game. I don't have any. I don't. That's the only game I own. I own Mortal Kombat on the PC. That's it. I don't play anything else. Our Monopoly is a product of the free market. Um, they are a product of... It's a very simplistic way to say it. The answer is yes, but it's... You can have a free market without monopolies if you have effective antitrust. So it's more complicated than just saying that. Um, but yes, 
Henry is a hero for the U.S. due to competing in the Olympics. True. If he wins and leaves the cringe persona at home, can he rise up to an actual celebrated champion? Thanks for everything you do. We talked about this on MK. Here's what I kind of came to. Um, coming off the Olympics, he was definitely trying to be like the like a guy who could live in two worlds, like be the Latin star and be like the American star. And I think it worked for him during that time. But I think as more he got into MMA, he made a switch. And I think he decided to do both the cringe stuff, but also I think he just saw himself... I mean, remember when he fought for Miga, right? He walked out to the cage in Me- he fought in Mexico twice in Monterrey. He fought in Mexico City. Um, and remember he was walking out with like the Aztec stuff on. Like he got rid of a lot of that and just kind of said, remember, he named his daughter America. He kind of just saw himself, I think, more in a different way. And again, these are not right or wrong questions. These are really about how these guys see themselves. And um, and I think he saw himself that way. So you know, can he get back to what he was doing with the Olympics? Like, I don't know. Like, I kind of think he, the cringe thing, you know, maybe there's a ceiling on it, but I don't think you can go back to being something other than what he is today. He can just be a bigger version of that. Um, But I guess there's always that component where if you've got the background that he does and you were this Olympian and you do live in two worlds, even if you sort of center yourself in one more than the other, again, no, no judgment. It's up to him. Um, I suppose you could always kind of play that old hit, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Yes, apparently today is some Star Wars holiday that nerds celebrate called May the 4th. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the question, I guess. Uh, Can you try to get a long-form Craig Jones interview? Good question. His mix of top-level BJJ, ADCC, MMA coaching, and humor would be great. Yeah, you know what? Um, I'd love to talk to Craig. Uh, I want to finish a couple of these things so I can get a better sense of all the stuff he's taught. He's got a million instructionals, too, but... Yeah, I've been very impressed. I mean, that one that he had on pinning, I'll show it to you here in just a minute, is like amazing. What app do you use for fight breakdowns? Um, It's called Coach's Eye. Coach's Eye. Uh, Let's see. I think I remember you said you tried therapy. Just curious what type. Was it dynamic psychotherapy? No, it was the kind where you sit down and you just talk, Um, which I don't know if it's necessarily the best kind. It's the version that we use in this world, but in the society anyway, but... um, it worked. It worked. It was, it was painful and it took a while, but it worked, you know, how is it possible that Patrick bet David of value can offer a hundred million to tuck across? And I don't know that he can. I mean, he put out something on social media. That doesn't mean he actually has the money. I mean, he might have the money. I don't know. Maybe he has a hundred million. He just wants to waste it. You know, I don't dude. like it. There's a lot of money in right wing uh punditry or and i know he does more than that i don't mean to say that he only does just that i'm talking about uh patrick bet david i know he's independently wealthy beyond that i, I get all that what i'm saying is like what they put the like the money that steven crowder was making and like ben shapiro like the money in the right wing media ecosystem is fucking insanely good insanely good uh DJ, i'm sure candace owens makes shit tons of money uh, DJ on Friday, Cejudo on Saturday. Quite a weekend for bantamweight all-time greats. No doubt about it. I mean, DJ, I still think of more as a flyweight all-time great, but to your point, quite fair. Everyone's on steroids. says, is it me or are people ready to overthrow division goats way too fast? They did it recently with GSP and Usman and now Cruz and Aljo. Yeah, I respect Aljo and I think he's criminally underrated, but I don't know with a win over Henry, he's like consensus all-time best bantamweight. I mean, he puts himself in a in, you know unique company at that point, but... Even then, it's like, 
the TJ win doesn't really count. You know, it's not his fault, but it does. It's the same thing I said when Chael Sonny got mad at me when he retired and about the Paulo Paulo Filio fight. Like Chael won that fight, but it's or the the one where he had the mental issue. It's not it's not Chael's fault that that fucking guy missed weight and had a mental episode. But it does mean we can't weigh it as heavily. It's in a similar situation where the not the mental part of it, but the shoulder injury being so severe to Dillashaw that like you know what can you really say? What can you really say? All right, boys and girls, that is it. I'm sure you love some stuff. I'm sure you hate some stuff. If you want to tell me how you feel about it, you can. You can leave a comment below or you can email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Either way. Um, there might be a Patreon on Monday. I don't know yet, but there's a decent chance I'll have one ready to go on Monday for a Cejudo Aljo breakdown. So we shall see. We shall see. I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. Actually, I do have one up, but it's dormant, but I could reactivate it. So we shall see. We shall see. Either way, thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. This will be up on podcast ASAP, and I love you all. So until next time, as Jerry Springer would say, take care of yourself and each other.